Hi, I'm Lindsay Jacobs, your host. Welcome to another episode of the Jero Psychology Podcast, where we talk about all things Jero. Each episode, I have a guest and we explore a topic that's relevant to the field of Jero Psychology. On today's episode, Dr. Jessica Strong joins me to talk about her research in the area of cognition and the effects of music training in late life. And she also talks about her exciting clinical work in applying her knowledge of and passion for music in a group therapy for older adults. Dr. Jessica Strong is a licensed clinical geropsychologist. She earned her doctorate in clinical psychology at the University of Louisville, and she recently completed an advanced geriatric fellowship at the New England Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center. She'll soon be starting her career as an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Prince Edward Island. As always, the views expressed in today's episode are our own and do not represent the views of the Department of Veterans Affairs or the United States government. so much for being on the podcast today, Jessica. I'm really excited about this. Me too. My first (laughs) podcast. (laughs) So one question that I've been asking folks when they come on to these episodes is first, how they got interested in geropsychology or more broadly, how they got interested in working with older adults. So I'm going to pose that question to you. Absolutely. I think for A lot of us that work with older adults, I know most people have had a a personal experience with aging before they even got into college or grad school, and that was kind of my story. Um, My mom is, or was, where she's retired, was a um, home care nurse, Um, and so (laughs) she's always embarrassed to say that once or twice when she couldn't find childcare, she would bring me along on a home visit to... um, (laughs) to see a patient with her. Um, and I do have a couple memories of like as a small child, like hanging out with the older adult while she's taking their blood pressure. You know, <laughs> visit. But then later on, when I was in middle school, uh, she and a couple of my aunts were the primary caregiver for my great aunt, Lila. And so we spent all of our holidays with my great aunt and would go over and help clean her house out on the weekends and stuff. She lived about an hour away from us. And I remember just being so fascinated by her. She, first of all, she was bald. And so she wore a wig, which, you know, as like 11 or 12 year old, that is awesome and fascinating. (laughs) But then she just had so many stories. She would tell like stories about her pet rat when she was a kid. And it was, it was just so interesting. Like, and then she actually um, started to decline cognitively when Mm -hmm. I was um, probably 12 or 13. And so watching her cognition change um, was a little bit scary at that time. I didn't really understand what was going on. And since that time, I've sort of had this interest in like both as a as a human being all the stories and all of the life that that older adults have. And at the same time, almost like a, like an academic fascination with the aging process, Mm -hmm. Um, like the empathy and the, and the interest. Yeah. Um, I think for a lot of kids, it can be really scary whenever you notice cognitive changes and a loved one, especially who you've known for a while. And um, you really do notice those changes. You're not quite sure what's going on. And yeah, 
Yeah. And I, I, when she was sort of at the end of life, my mom gave me the options like, you know, Aunt Lila is going to be dying soon. She was in hospice. She was like, do you want to go see her or not? She's like, she probably won't know who you are. And so, and I, I didn't want to, cause you know, at, I don't know, at like 13, I, I felt really uncomfortable doing that, but it was, I think that that relationship was probably one of the things that just got me interested. And and unlike a lot of other kids, being around her so much, being around old people wasn't scary, um, you know, yeah. until sort of at the very end with her. It was more just different and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then as I started to study psychology more in high school and college, it was like, oh, what, well, what goes on for these people that I, you know, have really connected with and enjoyed being around. Right. Yeah. And that's really interesting too, that, so your mom seemed, sounded like she was really open and talked to you about the changes that were happening. And then what a blessing it is for her to have been in hospice. Yeah. And for you to hear what that term is and start to get an understanding of what that is and what that means. Yeah, I think, and that's sort of why I I tie my interest in aging and geropsychology a lot to the work that my mom did because she did that as a home care nurse, as a visiting nurse. So she, I think, was probably ahead of the time a lot in you know in the eighties and nineties, um, and was able to recognize what was going on with my aunt, moved her in an, into an assisted living center, assisted living facility. Um, mm-hmm. And then as she started to decline, was like, she knew the system a little bit from being inside of it. Um, yeah. Not only that, she also knew about how to communicate with family members and including her own, her own children and her own siblings about what was going on. So it made the whole process, I think, a little bit more approachable. I think a lot of kids, they don't spend a lot of time with, with older adults, unless it's their own grandparents who are in good health. Right. And so she just, my mom was able to make a lot of that more accessible with the training that she had and the experience she had as a nurse and kind of process everything that was going on as my great aunt, you know, declined and passed away. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. Yeah. I was looking over some articles that you've published over the past several years and saw that, you know, a lot of your research has been in the area of the cognitive impact of music education and training, how that impacts older adults. How did you get interested in this area of research? So I was not going to be a psychologist when I was a child. Um, (laughs) We talked about, you know, getting interested in aging, kind of in a in a parallel line was an interest in music and healing um so i played i started playing the piano when i was around nine or ten years old i was in fourth grade and i had really bad performance anxiety for some reason i'm you know talking or giving presentations or teaching courses that's always been much easier for me and playing an instrument in front of people particularly solo was just terrifying and so when i was in high school i i didn't want to do performance i sort of thought maybe i will be a music therapist and a lot of the articles that i read late high school early college there's a lot of research about music therapy with older adults 
And so, you know, I knew I was kind of interested in the aging process. I didn't know geropsychology was a term, but interested in working with older adults. And I loved playing the piano, just not in that like really high pressure performance setting. So, mm-hmm. so I thought maybe music therapy. It's really hard. Music therapy is really, really specialized. Um, and people, you know, of course, can work with different populations across the lifespan. But I'm also someone who's always wanted to kind of keep doors open. And so I, I worried when I was applying to colleges about getting so specialized in music therapy without really knowing what a day-to-day life of a music therapist would look like. Um, you know, you kind of romanticize oh, using music to help people. Yeah. And so I decided to do a double major in psychology and piano. Um, And during college, I started to get interested. I started um, working on a research project with a psychology professor. And I was also choosing anytime I had, you know, an end of the semester or end of term paper or anything like that, I would do it on music therapy or music and whatever. And I started learning throughout college that I really enjoyed the research process and that most music therapists were bachelor or master's level clinicians who didn't really have the training to, they didn't have research training a research Mm -hmm. methodology or statistics or, um, they were clinicians. And so I sort of found, you know, there's this hole in people who are interested in this area of research and have the training to really be investigating why, you know, music therapy or music in general, what effect it has and and the mechanisms behind that. Um, and so rather than, my plan was like, okay, psychology and music, and then get my master's in music therapy. Rather than that, sort of my sophomore, junior year in college, I started thinking, well, what if I went more of a research route? I like the clinical side of things, um, but I'm really interested in why we're why we see these effects. You know, everyone, almost everyone, loves music and can talk about an important piece of music that's in their life, or you know how it's impacted them, or an emotion, or a memory. Mm-hmm. But people who are doing that to help people don't know how to research why that's happening. And so I got yeah. really interested in that why piece. So that's when I decided to go more into the PhD that would give me the clinical training, but then also be able to research some of these questions about the effect music is having and, and why, how it all works in the brain. That makes a lot of sense. So you have been doing research in this area for a little while now. Now you did your thesis on this and and also your dissertation, right? Yep. What have you found to be the late life cognitive benefits of early music education and training? So uh, my dissertation was exactly on that, the neuropsychological and cognitive differences of instrumental musicians compared to non-musicians. There's been quite a bit of research done earlier in the age spectrum, a lot of research done with children, longitudinal studies, a fair amount of research done cross-sectionally with adult musicians compared to non-musicians, but there's been relatively fewer studies done in aging. And that's really where we see, right, in the normal cognitive aging process, as cognition changes in late life, how does that early life intervention slash music education impact that? In my dissertation and sort of some subsequent studies, I've found pretty consistently a big effect on language ability. So older adults who have had more musical training tend to have higher language skills in late life. 
this is consistent across the lifespan and makes a lot of sense if you think about music as a language. Um, there's a there's brain research that shows that language processing and music processing are parallel systems. So I would expect then to see overlap if you have higher music skills or you've had more music training that would in that parallel system could overlap into your language ability. So language is one of the consistent findings. The other consistent finding that's, again, across the age spectrum and that I've found are benefits in certain types of executive functioning. Mm -hmm. And so that also is logical. If you think about playing a musical instrument, all of the things that your brain is having to do to play that instrument, um, right? So executive functioning, specifically, I'm thinking about inhibition, you know, stopping yourself from doing something or set switching between two categories or two things. Yeah. And as you play a musical instrument, you have the timing has to be very precise about when you press what button you have visual input from, you know, a conductor or other people that you're playing with. You have the auditory information about what you're playing and, and lining that up with, you know, what's on the page and what's around you. And then you're reading this language while you're doing it, right? That Mm -hmm. has a syntax, it has grammar, it has rules that we follow that make it make sense. So those executive functioning and language are kind of the two consistent and big findings that I have found with late life and that map on to what others have found earlier um, in childhood and adulthood. Yeah. And then I also found a benefit to visuospatial ability. So how things are perceived in space and... That makes sense, too. It isn't as clear to me as it is with the language and executive functioning, right? But the way we read music notation, you're reading it across a page. And at the same time, you have to be looking up and down where the note is on the staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, that The other finding that I have had is that um, benefit to visuospatial ability. That's really neat. You found such a, a large gap in the literature that r- really no one had looked at this. Now, there was one, there had been one study when I did my dissertation that had looked at older adults. And so I did sort of a replication extension and, and have been working with that area since then. There was really, mm-hmm. there was one study that had been done. It was in 2012, uh, 2011, 2012 with older adults. And now there's a little bit more, you know, there's a few people that are researching this area, but there's still a lot of questions Particularly, I was really hoping that I would find a benefit in memory for a couple of reasons. One, because we know memory changes naturally in aging. And two, a lot of the research that's been done with children and adults has found a benefit, particularly in verbal memory um, and occasionally also visual memory. And I was thinking like, oh, awesome. You know, if that mapped onto this late life side of things. Right. You know, and that would make sense, too, that that would be a benefit. Right. And this this initial study um, by Hannah Platty and McKay in 2011 didn't find a benefit in memory. I didn't find a benefit in memory. And a few subsequent studies have not found a benefit in memory. Um, One did. And it was a huge it was about a thousand people in the sample. So that's been kind of that's an interesting it's an interesting so is it that we're underpowered to find it because the effect size is so small um some people think maybe you know earlier in life music is we're not measuring the right type of memory in the studies that we do so we're really measuring like episodic memory in these 
list learning or story learning tasks with the tests that we use. Um, whereas by the time you've been playing an instrument for 30 or 40 years, it isn't an, an episodic memory thing. It might be at the beginning, you know, maybe mm-hmm. that's why we see it, maybe why we see an effect with children. Um, but by, by later in life, it's not, we're not measuring that same kind of memory. So what kind of memory would you want to look at in older adults? Implicit. Yeah. So by the time you've been playing this instrument for 30 or 40 years, it's more of an implicit memory function as opposed to the tests that we use that are measuring explicit recall. Mm -hmm. You know, there are other tasks that use implicit memory, like driving and riding a bike and these things that, you know, we really don't have to think about to do. Um, And I don't know that there are I don't know that we have tests to measure that, right? Because it's it's so task specific that you're this implicit memory for playing an instrument or, you know, remembering how to play an instrument isn't necessarily going to generalize to other types of memory or other tasks even. Right. So I think that's something that this area of research is really struggling to figure out, right? Is it that we're just underpowered in these studies that have 50, 60, 100 people? And we find that effect in the thousand because the effect is so small. But then if the effect is that small, is it clinically relevant? Does it really matter? You know, (laughs) and with the implicit memory, this makes me think about, you know, you see those those stories where, you know, this person has Alzheimer's dementia and can no longer communicate, have a conversation with someone and you put them in front of an instrument or something that they've played for or or have them sing a song that they sang in a quartet that they did many, many years ago and they're perfect at it. Yeah. Yeah. I know my roommate in college, her grandfather, everybody has a story, this anecdote where doesn't even know they play an instrument or doesn't know who their kid is or the day of the week, but then can play this song perfectly. And some of the recent research has found that music isn't necessarily stored in the brain in the same way that those autobiographical memories are. So it's stored in, you know, either more diffusely across the brain. So if dementia hits, you know, our particular area, like the hippocampus, that memory is easier, it could be more easily recalled. So those songs that we played, or the words to those songs are, you can just access them in a different way than you access your kid's name or the date or any of your autobiographical information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah, in your research, did you, I'm curious if you found if it mattered at what age the person had musical training or how much musical training they needed to have in order to get these benefits? Yeah, that's a really great question. I have been working on a paper just recently. There's been a little research done in this trying to figure out the age of acquisition and the dose effect. And so... There's some evidence that's been done previously that age of acquisition does matter. That would be similar to learning a language. There's sort of this sensitive period for it. It's not like you know vision where this we think about critical and sensitive periods, right? Like if you don't, if your eyes don't get exposure to stimuli within a certain period of time, they won't ever be able to develop correctly, mm-hmm. right? Like a critical period, sensitive period. We, this is how we think about language or a second language, and music seems to fall into this category, where if you acquire this skill throughout, so some research suggests nine, ten, eleven, twelve years old. 
it's going to have more of an effect, but you can still learn it later. The effect right. just isn't as great. Right. Um, and so, and that's the paper that I've been working on right now has found that similarly that around nine or 10, there seems to be more of an effect than later on. However, there's a woman down in Florida, Jennifer Bugos, who does research. She is providing piano classes for older adults, musically naive older adults, um, and looking at how learning that skill impacts their cognition. So she did um, a randomized controlled trial with healthy older adults, and now she's been working with older adults with mild cognitive impairment. Mm-hmm. And sort of randomly assigning people to receive piano class and practice or treatment or nothing and found that even in, you know, fifties and sixties, people do show a benefit in processing speed and some other cognitive domains starting an instrument later in life. So very cool. There seems to be a benefit across the lifespan and also kind of a sensitive period at the beginning where if you start it, then, you know, maybe you'll have more of an effect, but it's a really difficult thing to measure, Mm. you know, music in terms of dose. Right. Because people are involved in music activities sort of on and off throughout their lives often, you know, playing maybe more intensely for at certain periods and then less intensely at other periods or not at all for periods of time. And so it's hard to get like a really good quantitative dose of hours per week versus years versus whatever else. Um, Yeah particularly looking at older adults and sort of across a lifespan of 40 or 50 years, right? I've been playing the piano for 25 almost. And in that time, I started playing the piano in high school, maybe was playing, you know, maybe an hour a day. In college, I was playing four or five hours a day. And then I went a couple years with playing like once every couple months, maybe. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then what is that? How do we look at that across time? Um, yeah. And I'm studying people who are 20, 30, 40, 50 years older than I am. So have you, did you attempt to measure that or have you seen anybody try and measure that? So the way that I measured that in my dissertation study was by asking people, how many hours were you playing at the peak of your playing? Um, So to get like the highest dose that you ever had. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I think people have also asked more details, like, you know, in decade chunks. So, you know, how much were you playing in your 20s? How much were you playing in your 30s, in your 40s, etc.? And you sort of, as you would expect for people who aren't, there's there's sort of two paths, you know, for people who aren't professional musicians, there's going to be, there's often a big dip in the amount of time they spend playing because you get into your career and your family, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you stay connected at all, a lot of times in retirement, people might pick things back up again versus professional musicians who have like quite a high level and high involvement throughout their career. And then maybe actually go down in retirement when they stop playing as intensely. So it's, it's not an easy variable to get a hard and fast number on. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that I have been interested in is I know that you took your interest in this research area and you ended up developing a group. As I mentioned earlier, I was really interested in music therapy and how music can help people. And so, you know, this first area of research we're talking about cognition, early in life music experience and how that impacts later in life. But through my clinical training, I was really interested also in seeing how music might impact our mental health. Um, And I think probably most people listening to this, and and I know you and I 
both could relate to an experience where say you're driving in your car and a song comes on and it totally changes your mood, right? So you hear this song and maybe it's tied to a memory, maybe not. Um, it just really touches you in some way. And all of a sudden you're in tears or you have the windows down and you're, we're feeling kind of down and now you're singing, you know, with the whatever. (laughs) Um, and so I was interested in how music and particularly music listening can, can be used for mental health and helping people express emotion and feel emotion. I was working in a, the VA CLC, so similar to a skilled nursing facility where there's rehabilitation floors, there's hospice units, and long-term care. And I'd run mental health groups in this facility during my clinical internship year. And one of the things that I noticed that were was really difficult was the patient turnover. So mental health groups had to be more supportive. There really isn't a scenario where you can have a closed group for six or eight weeks that you have the same people coming to. People are being admitted and discharging all the time. Even ones who are there for you know a few months might have an appointment with another service, so they're not available some weeks and they are other weeks. Mm-hmm. And so just having um, the same people in the group wasn't really feasible. So it was hard to build on material week to week was one of the challenges. The other challenge was the differing levels of ability, particularly in cognition. So there were people, there's people in these facilities that are, you know, just had a hip replacement and need some intense subacute PT before they can discharge home. And they're completely cognitively with it. They're going back to work when they get discharged. And there's people in their 80s and 90s who have failed at home and are waiting to be placed into a long-term care facility who are, you know, moderately impaired in their cognition. And really finding, it was really difficult to get all these people to connect on something uh, because they're in such different places. Right. And so I had the idea that, you know, music is something that we refer to as a universal language. You can enjoy it and listen to it, even if you don't understand the words or even if it doesn't have words. And that music might be something that could help even the playing field, quote unquote, for these people who were more impaired or less impaired. And so I developed the group to to meet kind of both of those challenges. The first is that each session is standalone. The you know, I have eight different topics, but they're non-sequential, non-cumulative. So you can sort of pick and choose a topic depending on who's there that day. And that the information in the manual is tailored for different ability levels. So here are some discussion questions if the people are more cognitively intact. And here's some prompts you can use if people are less cognitively intact and you're trying to get them more engaged in the topic. So I developed eight different topics. Some of them are a little bit more psychoeducational, um, where we talk about depression or mood and music and can use music to talk about, you know, a model of depression. So how does music impact our behaviors? How does it impact our emotions? How does it impact our thoughts? And how are all those things related? Um, And then also use music to talk about how we can impact that. So if we're feeling really isolated in our room and we don't want to get out a behavior, if we put some music on, that can, you know, make us feel more like socializing or sharing that with someone. You know, if a, a certain song we know picks up our mood, can we put that song on to affect an emotion that, you know, can um, help that cycle break or get started? I love that. Makes me think about in my own practice, 
when I'm working with caregivers, part of Reach VA or the original Reach, there's uh, a section where you talk about pleasant events, pleasant activities, and enhancing one's mood. And listening to music is actually part of that. Yeah. And I even talk, you know, in individual therapy with other patients, not specific to caregivers, I talk about using music for mood enhance, mood improvement. And I really like how you've taken this topic and really focused on it. So I didn't actually mention the barrier of mental health stigma and working with older adult male, primarily male veterans, and how a lot of times, you know, we say, oh, we're getting together for the mental health group. And we're like, oh, I don't need that. Or I'm not crazy. Right. Yeah. But this sort of almost can be spun as almost like a recreation therapy activity, right? Who doesn't want to listen to some tunes and then, right? And so we sort of frame it as like, this is a mental health group, but here's what we do. We take requests from people. We listen to the music that you want to listen to, and we'll talk about how it affects your mood or how it affects your stress. So those four, so four of the topics are, as I mentioned, a little bit more psychoeducation and so we have a mood or depression in music, uh, anxiety or stress, PTSD, and chronic pain, each sort of paired with music. So there's a psychoeducational component where I'm using music to help teach about whatever that might be. And then we also use music to talk about how we can cope with any of the issues that we talked about. And then we, we practice that in the session. Um, the other four topics are meant to have a little bit more of a psychotherapeutic emphasis. And so those topics include using music to help with awareness, breathing and awareness, a guided imagery and relaxation. We do a song lyric analysis and a personal autobiographical emphasis on resilience. And so those last two, the song lyrics and the personal reflection are two of my favorites. In the song lyric one, we will read, I'll pick a song for that, and we'll read through the lyrics and talk about how just reading them, how they, what impact they have. And then we'll listen to it and see how adding the music takes away or adds to the meaning. Um, a lot of times people haven't done that and they found it, they find it really, really powerful to just read through the really focusing just on the words and the language that an artist uses, mm -hmm. um, taking the music out of it and how much then, you know, might be added or taken away from that meaning. And then the personal reflection one, we sort of emphasize thinking of a song that you have a specific memory tied to of maybe a time that was difficult for you and what lessons you learned from that and what maybe you can apply from those lessons to what you're going through now. So really focusing on using music to promote um, reminiscence, but then tying it to resiliency in, you know, whatever stressful event might be going on. Mm -hmm. Those two are, are probably two of my favorite sessions. They're just both usually so rich and people across the cognitive spectrum can participate and really, really get into it. So. Yeah. I love those topics. How did you decide on those topics? Um, the psycho ed topics, so the anxiety, depression, PTSD, chronic pain were sort of, those are the four biggest things that we see in that setting. And so I wanted to make sure to touch on each of those specifically, but I also frame them in a way that can be accessible. So I mentioned depression or mood and music. So that can be relevant, even if there aren't people in the group who have diagnosed clinical depression, music can impact your mood. So, you know, we can sort of broaden the relevance for more people. And then the other four, so the, those two that I mentioned, the lyrics and personal reflection, those 
those I am I'm borrowing from music therapy. Not exactly. I, I don't know how a music therapist would do that, but those are both tools that I know are used in music therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so taking them to help people, you know, a lot of us have memories tied to particular songs. And so using what I know about reminiscence, but using music to sort of help pull those memories out or um, to help people access an emotion by reading you know, maybe a little bit of a charged lyric. So yeah, focusing more on how can we get people to access some different emotions or some different thoughts that might not be something that they want to talk about Mm -hmm. straight out, but that music can sort of lessen the blow of having to verbalize something immediately, right? It it makes it more approachable. And so I wanted to focus- Yeah, exactly. Like a buffer. So I wanted some of these more psychotherapeutic ones to really focus on just that resilience piece. And so you started this group in the CLC. What have you observed in the CLC residents level of engagement in these groups? Yeah, so I just actually finished collecting data a few months ago on the program evaluation piece of the group. Um, So we were looking at engagement. Um, It was quite high. I don't have a comparison group for that, but people were very engaged. We, We sort of measured engagement every 10 minutes on a check. So are they verbally engaged? Are they non-verbally and actively engaged, like tapping their foot or, you know, moving to the music or something Mm -hmm. unengaged, you know, sort of passively listening or like asleep slash on their phone slash not tuned in at all. (laughs) And most people were pretty actively engaged throughout um, the session. The groups, we, attendance-wise, we have up to six or seven people. And for, for about the last six to eight months, it's probably been, we've seen like three to five people pretty regularly, which is a good size for that group. Because I try to get everyone to have at least one song request that we can listen mm-hmm. they want to listen to. So more than five, it can get a little bit too much. <laughs> yeah. There isn't time for everybody to have a song. And then we also looked at the impact that group had on people's affect before and after and their pain and perceived quality of life. So um, asking people, how is your mood? Poor, fair, good, excellent, your energy level, um, that was perceived quality of life. And then for affect, how, for example, how irritated are you feeling right now before and after group? And so we're writing that paper up right now. And people had an increase in energy level from before and after participating. Which I was a little bit actually surprised by because for a lot of these people, participating in an activity can be really draining. And so we definitely had people where I could tell it was really energizing for them. But we also had a fair amount of people where I thought, I thought that that the energy would sort of be a wash, right? That there were enough people where it was so draining to participate that that would even out. But apparently my anecdotal observations were (laughs) inaccurate compared to the objective statistics. So we saw an um, increase in energy level and then a couple of statistical trends, which I mentioned because this is a, you know, pilot sort of first round evaluation, um, particularly for decrease in irritability. That was kind of nice also. Yeah, I have worked in CLC nursing home settings before, and I know how difficult it can be to run a group. Yep. And and I know you've had that experience, not just with this group, but with others. And I'm curious what your experience has been like, you know, sort of anecdotally comparing how it was running this group versus other groups. I think the, the consistency across all the groups is like, 
And, and one of the things that I love working in the setting is that you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> so I find like so much more than the outpatient setting, you might go into it and, and it will be awesome. And like, you know, you come out of it just glowing, like what a great group that was. And there are other groups where you're like really excited about the topic. And then something happens and it's just totally, you, you just can never tell. One of the things that makes this group easier for me is that you can sort of fall back on the music part if mm-hmm. things are kind of getting out of control. So for example, if you have someone who's more cognitively impaired and is really hard to redirect and sort of is just like taken over or is, you know, really negative and perseverative about something, it's a lot easier to say, hey, I think it's about time to listen to another song. Who wants to hear or what's, you know, what does this person want to hear? Or what does someone else want to hear to sort of, it allows the group to kind of have a break almost Yeah. in some ways that I think if you only have verbal things going on, it's a lot more difficult to have that opportunity. So I found that to be easier and that people, once they come, they just really enjoy it so much. And I think a lot of them are more open to coming because of the music piece. Yeah, so yeah. again, like anecdotally, people are like, wow, I never get the chance to talk about music and how it has this effect on me. And being able to really tie it into mental health. I don't necessarily think this group is going to you know, cure anyone's depression or anxiety or PTSD, but it gives people a chance to just like dip their toe into mental health, maybe have a good experience in a mental health group and think, hey, I could try this, you know, once I'm out of out of here or, you know, out of the CLC. Mm hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Now, so this, it was developed and implemented in a CLC, in a nursing home environment. Yeah. Do you see that this group could be implemented in any other kind of setting? And if so, which ones? Yeah. So I'm hoping to do some more work with that in the future. Now that, you know, the manual is pretty well developed for this setting, for the, you know, subacute medical setting. Um, there's a few colleagues at VA Boston who are interested in it. We might be trying it in the inpatient psychiatry setting. I think there's a lot of similarities in terms of patient turnover and characteristics in the inpatient setting that that would lend itself really well to to that um, inpatient psychiatry. And then I've thought about it at an outpatient setting and uh, I think it is a it could be a really nice sort of mental health overview for people who are getting older, maybe having any sort of adjustment with medical illness or adjustment to a change in you know relationship status or relationship quality, and just kind of again having having it more of an a general overview of this is these are some common mental health things mental health diagnoses, mental health issues that, you know, you might be able to recognize here are the signs of what it would mean to be clinically depressed versus what's normal low mood look like. And then using this really concrete stimulus to explain that, using music to help understand the relationship between behaviors and thoughts and feelings, etc. And then how to manage it. So if you are recognizing this normal low mood in yourself, what might you want to do with music? Or if you're recognizing this, you know, maybe more clinical depression in yourself, what would you need to do in addition to put it on your favorite tune? You know? Yeah, I like that a lot. It makes me think about 
I've seen in some outpatient mental health settings where they have an orientation group where you're really just providing psychoeducation and then people can then advance to another kind of group. But I, but what I really like about the group that you've developed is you're giving them a bit more, you know, you're not only providing orientation to a mental health setting and psychoeducation about these common issues that people struggle with, but you're going beyond by giving them some specific skills that they can put into practice. Yeah, I think the idea of it as an orientation type of group in an outpatient setting would probably work the best. And so I'm hoping, you know, kind of moving forward that I might be able to explore it a little bit more in some different settings or with different populations even. In the past, I've done some outreach, you know, going to senior centers and things like that and providing psychoeducation. And so I could really see that being a nice setting to do a group like this. Yeah, like in like assisted living or, you know, 55 plus community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. That's a great idea. In your opinion, what do you feel are the takeaways from your research, both the earlier research that you've been doing on the cognitive benefits of music training and education, and then also the mental health and music group? And what's your recommendation on how clinicians can put this knowledge into their own clinical practice? I think of these research in like parallel veins. I think that takeaways on the research that I've done with early life musical training and cognition, I think that a lot of that research, it really encourages music learning and music programs in schools. And really, those are a lot of the programs that are getting cut, right? Because mm-hmm. you can't, we're testing to math and to English, but kids who are in those programs show better length, right? We talked about this like parallel process with language and music. Kids who are in music lessons tend to do better on language tests. They tend to have higher math skills. There are some confounding variables, right? SES and other things of like the demographics of kids who tend to be in music. But so I think one of those is supporting, you know, music in the schools. And as I mentioned, some of the research that even starting an instrument or being involved in music later in life, even if you haven't done it before, can really have a huge benefit to cognition, as I've found. As other people have found, it can help decrease social isolation. You have like a little bit of a community if you're singing in a choir. And a lot of people, you don't need to know music to sing, right? You can, a lot of people can learn the notes by listening. Mm -hmm. And a lot of choirs will tailor to that. So community choirs. Um, So I think that's kind of the takeaway is the early school involvement and support as well as later in life getting involved in trying a new activity even if it's if it's not your thing or hasn't been your thing in the past getting involved in that sort of thing is fantastic exercise for your brain and then in terms of the group that I developed I think those takeaways are particularly for clinicians I'm not a music therapist I'm not playing an instrument with you know my clients or my patients and using that but I am using a tool that I know works to access emotions and access memories and I know a lot of psychologists you you mentioned even Lynn like in the reach VA, it says like, oh, listen to music as, you know, a way to connect or, you know, mm-hmm. relax, um, maybe a, someone you're taking care of. 
But even going further than that and playing music in a session with someone to help them access um, an emotion that they might not have a word for, right? Music can help people express things that they don't know or don't have the language to do so. And so it might be a little bit outside of a clinician's comfort zone to think about that. But I would think of it like any other tool that we use to help someone reach a goal, right? Music can be a tool that we can implement in session um, in a group to help someone remember or feel something that then we can talk about. Music therapy has this continuum of how music is used in session, all the way from no words and just music to psychotherapy with music. And that's sort of how I'm on that far end of the continuum where I'm doing psychotherapy and I might play music or I might talk about a song, but then I'm using it in psychotherapy as a psychotherapist, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas a music therapist might be like across the whole other side of the spectrum up to psychotherapy with music, um, where, where emphasis is more on the music part. I'm still a psychotherapist. I'm still a clinician and I'm using music as this tool to help access memories, emotions, particularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Thanks. I gave a workshop to some social workers a few months ago, and one of them was talking about all of his work with couples. And he said in all the years he'd been working with couples and trying to get them to sort of go back to an emotional connection, he'd never thought of asking them to listen to their wedding song. Ah. Uh... And and as I was, I gave that as an example, right? If you're working with couples and you're trying to find like an emotional connection, like that's a, that's somewhere where, you know, we can like go back to that point. And yeah, anyway, it's so funny how music does that. I mean, when you said that, I got chills. (laughs) (laughs) It just, it has, again, it's like this, such this powerful tool that I think we could be using more because we recognize it, right? Clinical psychologists talk, like you said, in Reach VA, it's in so many like handouts, like use music to relax, use music to this. Can we practice doing that in session like we do with other tools? That yeah. We're you know, you know what this is making me think of, you know, that I use ACT a lot in my yeah. practice, my clinical practice. And one of the things that I really love about ACT is using the experiential exercises to bring that emotion, to to have the person experience that in session and to really process that and talk about it. Yes. This is a perfect tool to use for an experiential exercise. It is. Yep. That's exactly. Particularly if a song has that emotion and we all, you know, song that was played at someone's funeral that we care about or you know or a wedding song or songs just they they really can bring a lot a lot of emotions particularly if we're focusing on that Mm -hmm. that's exactly yes so I expect to hear back about how your music in session were experiential. I have to say, Jessica, you have totally sold me on this idea. Yes. <laughs> Why, that's all that I have for today. I really appreciate you talking to me about this topic today. It's super fun. I'm always, always happy to talk about it. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You can subscribe to the Jero Psychology Podcast anywhere podcasts are found. 
Be sure to leave your ratings in the form of stars and comments. If you'd like to communicate with me directly, visit www.thegeropsychologypodcast.com and leave me a message. You can also follow me on Twitter at the Jero Podcast.